Dave. Uh, welcome to the Patterpod. Uh, hello, Alex, and thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing today? Doing quite well, thank you. It's been raining, but uh, apart from that, it's fine. Uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to our chat this evening. I've been preparing my studio, ready for it. <laughs> so just describe for the listeners what your studio <laughs> setup is like. Okay, well, I'm, I'm lucky enough in my two-bedroom flat to have a walk-in wardrobe, which is probably about two and a half metres by one and a half metre, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and of course, it's full of clothes which is not a bad start for sound absorbency. Yeah. Uh, and then I've, I've sort of augmented that with a couple of duvets and a nice low-level light and uh, a glass of water and a glass of red wine. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, I'm surprised you're not falling asleep, Dave. That sounds uh, very well, comfortable. I'm, I'm trying very hard. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> So you, oh gosh, I don't even know where to begin with you, Dave. Uh, I, I feel like that most days when I get up in the morning, actually, but uh, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> um, so we are recording near the end of June, and we've just had, what, three months of lockdown and restrictions. How have you found the last three months? Well, I've found it, as everybody has, I've found it very, very strange and mm. quite distressing in lots of ways the fact that you can't be with your friends yeah the fact that you can't sing with your friends you can't sort of have a laugh with your mm. friends a lot has been taken away i live on my own and i'm very used to my own company and that's that's not a problem but uh i have found that i've needed to get out of the flat as much as i can just just to sort of say stay sane you know yeah. And, uh, so I've been out on the push bike. I've been walking as much as I can just to sort of keep keep fit and yeah. uh, get out and about. Um, so having said all that, I am extremely fortunate to be a pensioner, which means I don't have to worry about money. Yeah. Uh, I don't have to worry about, you know, um, kids, education or anything like that. Um, so... Life is really quite simple for somebody like me. Yeah. Therefore, I am uh, very reluctant to complain. Having said that, I do still miss the nice things of life, which involve other people, you know. It's great doing the Zoom chats, you know. Yeah. Uh, Zoom chats with harmonic people. I've had Zoom chats with the cathedral choir people, as you know. Uh, also with the windmill people, where I, I volunteer at Green's Mill. Um, but it feels very odd when you leave the meeting. Yeah. When the meeting finishes, the sense of being alone is somehow amplified because you haven't had to make a journey home. Yeah. You know, you haven't had to travel. There's nothing to mark that transition between being with people and not being with people. Suddenly, oh, where did they go? Yeah. You know, it's like they just vanished. Yeah. And that's a weird thing. Yeah. And quite troubling. It is that sort of sudden, the suddenness mm. about it. Yeah from the room feeling full <laughs> yeah. to suddenly just being... You're back on your own. I think what you have to remember, of course, is that it's the same, although you're aware of your own feelings, I suppose you have to try and remember that it's, it's the same for everybody. For yeah. all the participants in that meeting, all of them have had to go through that, oh. Yeah. 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 So this is wonderfully upbeat content for the podcast. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 don't worry at all. Well, you did you did ask. You I did, did ask. ask. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Dave, we have known each other for what, 14, 13, 14 years now? Yeah, thereabouts, yes. We must have thereabouts. we must have, I think, first met in two thousand and six. Yes. I would think so. I've been, was, yeah. I've been looking back in my diary. I mean, that's that's a bit sad, isn't it? I keep diaries that long, but uh, um, I, there were one or two occasions during two thousand and six when I seemed to have got roped in, as they say, <laughs> to one or two St Barnabasy things by okay. by Mr Page, and so I would have met you then. But I certainly knew you by two thousand and seven. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> I think memories were definitely made in 2007. Oh, they certainly were. 
So you're not a native of Nottingham. Mm. Where was home for you? Yeah, it's. I've lived in loads of places. It's hard to pin it down. But I originate in uh, southwest London. Yeah. We lived in Balham, which was made famous by Peter Sellers, Balham, Gateway to the South. Yeah. Uh, and um, <laughs> but I don't remember it because when I was a few months old, we moved to Northwest London, uh, not far from Wembley Stadium, Neasden, Crickerwood, that area. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the first place I remember. But when I was only six and a half, for various reasons, our family moved to the country. Okay. And so it was a, a major. It must have been quite traumatic, actually, to sort of move from a, a large London infant school with mm. 10 classrooms to suddenly, a few weeks later, find myself in a little village school that, that used to serve all ages from 5 to 15, yeah. you know, in, in three classrooms, you yeah. know, infants, juniors, seniors, you know, and, and that was a bizarre thing. Not sure I ever quite got over that. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, I grew up in rural um, Huntingdonshire yeah. and uh, stayed there really through till the um, mid to late 70s. And then I moved to Peterborough for five years and then I came to Nottingham. So Ooh. that's potted history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. But done all, all sorts of weird and wonderful jobs during that time as well. Excellent. Well, you, yeah. You... Great minds. Um, so can you take us, give us a whistle-stop tour of um, some of the work that you've done before retirement? Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, post office telephones for 10 years, which was um, very much office-based, uh, large public corporation, nationalised industry. It's now BT, of course, but in those days it was uh, owned by the nation. Mm. Uh, and uh, I found that quite interesting because I, uh, I've always had a... Um, an interest in how things work yeah um, systems uh mechanical things electrical things um i, I think this, this has always been a bit of a bugbear for me because I've, I've always been slightly envious of people who know exactly what they want to do yeah for example you know they want to be a musician they want to be an artist they want to be a you know whatever an engineer whatever it is i have never never been anywhere near knowing what I want to do. And right. I've always had this sort of, you know, pull in two different directions, you know, between, uh, you know, interest in mechanical, uh, technical things and interest in artistic things, creative mm. things. And uh, I've never, ever reconciled it. I don't think I ever will. So there it is. Anyway, so there's a slight digression there. But uh, the telephone service I found absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, when you when you start going into the detail of how fifty point line finders work and mo <laughs> motor driven group unit selectors and two motion final selectors for PADXs, I mean, wow! You know, absolutely fantastic. And the whole of that world of electromechanical switching that we had to learn about uh, is all gone. Yeah, it's completely disappeared. And so, yeah, there have been two occasions really in my life when I have been closely involved with a technology that has become again within my lifetime completely redundant <laughs> the other example of course is 35 millimeter film projection which i learned first of all in the late 1970s and then re revisited that in the 80s and 90s when i worked at broadway cinema in nottingham so you know i've showed lots and lots of films yeah on 35 millimeter projectors which again, I absolutely love. You know the, uh, the the mechanics involved in that. You know, it's oh, yeah. fabulous, so nice. And that again, it's gone. It yeah. Doesn't exist anymore, apart from in you know museums almost. You know, uh, <laughs> because everything's gone digital. Yeah. Uh, so the job of a projectionist has virtually disappeared. So yeah, I feel quite fortunate to have had close contact with those two technologies, which um, you know are actually now finished gone yeah what fun to have known them you know great so yeah i mean in the 1980s i did a lot of theater work uh stage lighting sound my first professional theater job was uh, with the key theater in peterborough i spent 18 months working there um doing looking after the lighting mainly operating the lighting board 
um, getting shows in week after week, get them in on a Monday, get them out on a Saturday, different companies touring, you know, uh, Sunday night concerts, all that. You know, it was bloody hard work mm. and really poor pay, dreadful. But I wouldn't have missed that experience for the world. I mean, I really wouldn't. So, I mean, seat of the pants, you know. I mean, you, you yeah. just got to, you've got to get it right, you know. Yeah. There's no... The lorry arrives on a Monday morning at nine o'clock and then at half past seven, curtain up and the show has got to work, you know. And, yeah. yeah. You know, that's it. There's no no leeway for any sort of error, you know, just got to do it. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, I, I, I that was as a resident technician. And then in 1980, I did six months on a, uh, a tour with uh, the Crucible Theatre Company from Sheffield um, up and down the country to the big theatres and doing a show called Once a Catholic, which was hilarious um, <laughs> and um, complete piss take of Catholicism. I seem to have sort of, you know, <laughs> ended up somewhere near that. I'm saying <laughs> nothing, Dave. <laughs> Oh, dear. But, um, I mean, again, that was a great experience. The boot was on the other foot. I was visiting theatres as a member of a, comp- a touring company yeah. and, uh, you know, making the show work at lots of different venues. And that was great experience. Um, and then uh, after that, I did some work with a, th- a community theatre company, Perspective Theatre Company, uh, which were based in Peterborough, but then moved to Mansfield. That's why I came to Nottingham in 82. Oh, um, uh, uh, and of course, that was doing small-scale touring to schools, community centres. Uh, a lot of it was quite didactic. Well, it, it was not wasn't supposed to be didactic, but I think it probably was. Uh, mm. We had a we definitely had our political message, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know that uh, you know that had to be got over. Yeah. Uh, some of the work was great. Some of it was awful. Um, <laughs> Do try, please, not to think of Legs Akimbo Theatre Company you know, the, uh, in the famous, uh, um, is it Little Britain or whichever one it was? They basically um, lampooned um, community theatre. Um, oh, okay. All that. Yeah. Uh, there we are. Um, so, yeah, that was a great experience. Uh, one of the great things about it was it was a cooperatively run outfit, which meant we all had an equal say. We all got paid the same. There was no hierarchy. And... Um, tremendous experience to be in a, a setup like that you know really yeah nice. it's good and to complete that sort of summary if you like i i also did a, a year or so at a whole food shop in nottingham called hiziki that was tremendous that's another workers cooperative uh and uh, we were ahead of the game this is mid 1980s when you know we sold things like soya milk when nobody else did you know? <laughs> so, you know it was quite groundbreaking really and again great fun tremendous friendships formed there you know uh, and then um, after a bit of temping and so on, um, I also went to an art centre for a while in Nottingham where we had some real, weird and wonderful performance art. You know, that was uh, very strange sometimes, but uh, interesting. <laughs> but then I ended up working for the council for the last eight years of my working life and was very closely involved with the Nottingham tram project. Ah. So I'm a big tram fan. <laughs> we'll not hear a word against it. Can you tell us a bit about your musical background and what sort of music that you like, what sort of music you don't like? That is such a big question. I'm so sorry. Hmm. Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, yeah, it's a very difficult one to answer, actually. Uh, like most people, I suppose I try and claim to have an open mind and to be, you know, um, not too restrictive in my tastes. Um, but uh, it's certainly true to say that Going back to childhood, uh, I'm being the youngest of four. Uh, I I had uh, two elder sisters and an older brother. uh, And then there was a big gap before I came along. So, of course, when I was a child, um, all the music that was being played in the house were things like Bill Haley, Elvis Presley, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, all that lot, you know. Uh, Mm. Particularly my brother and my second sister, uh, they were both very much into rock and roll and going out and join themselves. And um, I can remember my mother being a little bit dismissive of a lot of this, you know, oh, terrible noise, terrible noise. And, and I don't know, but I tended to sort of side with my mum on this and, okay. uh, you know, to a certain extent. And uh, I never really liked it either. And I, I was probably a bit, you know, uh, a bit sort of um, 
sniffy about it all, you know. And so uh, for a long time, I actually find it quite hard to engage with pop music very much at all. Um, okay. I think that sort of started to change towards my later teens when I suddenly discovered things like Motown and uh, soul music and so on. And wow, you know, that was, hmm. that was interesting and it was uh, instrumental and it had lots of uh, uh, really good, um, you know, brass sections and things like that, you know, and wonderful bass lines. And, uh, and I think that got me going, if you like, you know. Yeah. Uh, but of course, all the way through, uh, I was brought up with a lot of church music and uh, also uh, uh, with um, my mum's um, amateur dramatic inclinations, which uh, were things like Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I was steeped in all that as well. Yeah. So you were a chorister? Uh, I was. I, yeah, I think I first started in a I don't, it's a bit hazy. It's a long time ago, Alex. But uh, <laughs> I think I must have started when I was about eight, something like that. Okay. But yeah. that was a really small village church, and it would have been very, very basic indeed. But it wasn't until I was about eleven that uh, you know we moved to the local town, St Neots, and uh, I got involved in the church. Uh, in a place called Eaton Soken, which is just south of St. Neots. And uh, they had a really quite a decent choir and a good organist. And, um, you know, that, that, that gave me much more of a, an experience of, uh, of Church of England music, you know. Yeah. Um, although, I mean, I, I don't think we had that big of a repertoire, really. You know, it wasn't the sort of experience you'd have had in a, in, in a, ta- in a bigger town, you know. Hmm. But uh, I, in fact, I was looking at a photograph today uh, taken of the choir, uh, and um, looks like there were about thirty of us, which is not bad for you know, yeah, a small a great number church choir. You know, not bad at all. Mm. So that must say something about the guy who was running the outfit, who's a guy called Ralph Ralph Franklin, yeah. and uh, he uh, he must have uh, had whatever it takes to sort of get that loyalty from people and uh, to get them staying and, uh, yeah. you know, putting in the work. You know, I, I was uh, really very sort of dedicated to it, I suppose, as a kid. I mean, it didn't really seem anything unusual at the time. But looking back on it, I mean, I was there five times a week. Uh, Tuesday nights, wow. Tuesday night choir practice, <laughs> Friday night choir practice. Uh, and then Sunday we had uh, 8.30 song Eucharist, 11 o'clock matins, 6.30 in the evening even song, you know. Uh, matins was only every other week, but, uh, you know, it's a big commitment. Yeah, huge compared to <laughs> what we're sort of used to at the moment. Well, yeah, me. yeah, yeah, that's it. So did you have a particular sort of mindset of how you were choosing your seven tracks? Or... Uh, yes, I do. And... I did struggle to start with, uh, be quite honest, mm. because um, trying to make a choice, you know, of my favourite pieces of music out of all the pieces of music in the world, you know, I mean, that's that's a bit daunting. Um, mm. And so the approach I've taken is not so much trying to choose favourite pieces. Uh, it's more about choosing pieces that, if you like, are milestones in my life. Um, yeah. represent certain times of my life. And uh, so I hope it doesn't make it too sort of autobiographical or whatever, but uh, that was really the only way I felt I could approach it. And so these these pieces um, all have a context uh, within my history, if you like. Excellent. Yeah. Great. Um, well, let's get stuck in. Uh, tell us about your first track. Just a Little Loving. Dusty Springfield and what an amazing voice she had mm. and what a terrible tragedy it is that, uh, that, that she wasn't able to go on and have a, a longer career. But this track, Just a Little Loving, it's actually from her album Dusty in Memphis, mm. which was released in 1969. Uh, so I would have been, what, 19 at that time? And it was actually the first album that I ever bought oh. on vinyl, obviously, in those days. Yeah. And uh, I can remember we had a, a stereogram. Um, I don't know whether you know. It's like a, I have a, no idea what that is. I need to Google a that. A stereogram is a wonderful piece of furniture um, because 
you know, it was all about bits of furniture, really. It's, uh, you know, it's before the days of stack systems or anything, or separates or anything like that. You know, your yeah. your, your, your sound came from this this splendid piece of furniture. It was a bit like a sideboard, I suppose, uh, and a speaker at each end, lift up lid, and it actually was stereo, which of course was still quite new then. And um, I used to just love listening to this lush music uh, in stereo. Um, and to this day, I mean, Dusty in Memphis has stood up, stood the test of time. It's an absolute classic album. Just a little loving early in the morning beats a cup of coffee for starting off the some Gilbert and Sullivan next. I have, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, forgive me, but um, uh, I mean, I'm not a big GNS fan, but uh, the reason that I've uh, included this, it's about my mum, really. Mm. And uh, my mum was, I mean, it's a long tradition in the family. It goes right back to her father, my grandfather, Lance, uh, who used to run the local music in a, in a, in a place called Sittingbourne in Kent. Uh, and he used to conduct the local choir, the co-op choir, I think it was. And he used to um, conduct the local GNS performances and so on. Uh, he used to give piano lessons. You know, he was one of those all-purpose local musicians that, yeah. it, it, that, that used to exist, but I, I suspect probably disappeared now uh, but he used to play church organ as well and on a Saturday night he would uh, play with a small band for Saturday night dances you know just a little trio mm. or something like that you know so they did a bit of everything I think actually I think he even used to accompany uh, silent films at one point oh great um, so I mean he was born in 1889 I think it was uh, yeah. so you know we're going back a long way but my mum uh, was um, his only daughter, and uh, she, uh, I think, inherited that uh, love of amateur music making. And in 1961, my mum was a founder member of the new operatic society in St. Neots in Cambridgeshire. It's now Cambridgeshire. Um, St. Neots and District Operatic Society. And they decided to launch their new society with the performance of the Yeoman of the Guard, which is pretty unusual actually because the Yeoman of the Guard is actually far more serious than most of the comic operas of Gilbert yeah. Sullivan you know like the Gondoliers Mikado and all the rest of it and I think Sullivan intended it to be much more operatic you know and uh, and, and the music actually does uh, reflect that the overture is uh, really very good and uh, it's not just a potpourri overture of all the songs in the show like most of them are it's actually got yeah. a structure and uh, it's very dramatic and um, there it is but anyway mum got the part of dame carruthers dame carruthers was the housekeeper of the tower of london and uh, she sings this song um in a big contralto voice and mum had a very very good alto voice uh and uh, uh she, yes, I mean, this is a very strong uh, sort of uh, female part um, looking after the Tower of London and uh, very solemn and all the rest of it. And it's just a very big memory for me, you know, seeing my mum on yeah. stage doing this. Um, I was, what, 11 and I got roped in and uh, I used to go along to rehearsals every week, turn the pages for my mum when she played the piano very often. Uh, and at the time of the actual shows, I was cool boy which meant I was responsible for calling the principals to the stage uh, in time for their cues. Uh, there was no tannoy or anything like that, so it all had to be done, you know, live. Uh, to actually go around and find people. And if you know the world of amateur dramatics, which I know you do, Alex, <laughs> uh, you'll know what divas some of these amateur principals can be. And yeah. uh, some of them, you know, had to be chased. Uh, <laughs> say, oi! 
get, get on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Although, of course, I did it in my most polite way, but uh, there we are. <laughs> when I hear the band strike up, you know, the start of this um, piece, uh, it just takes me right back there. I mean, believe me, the quality of our orchestra was pretty awful. Uh, strings, <laughs> the strings were dreadful. Uh, but um, nevertheless, it was um, it was local amateur music making. And I mean, I, I've carried that with me through the whole of my life, I think, you know. I remember hearing a professional London orchestra doing a sort of semi-stage performance of HMS Pinafore. And I remember thinking, this doesn't feel right because, you know, everything's, you know, bang in tune and, yes, just you know, good. sounding, yeah, it's all quite mm. clear and, you know, tuneful. Whereas GNS for me is, um, I mean, I did, I was MD you, for Rudigore. You were, yes, I remember. But I also did um, props for the Mikado in the previous oh, year. Oh, what? Um, that was my second year at all university. The, all those fans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my goodness me um, uh, and what I recall about that one, they had a puppet show for some reason in the middle I'm not quite sure why and uh, sounds it, a bit modern it, well yeah um, but it became very clear I think two weeks before the show was about to go that they needed someone else to help with the puppets and because I just happened to be in the area they got me involved so I remember having to rush onto, onto stage behind this I think it was shadow puppetry as well. So I was on my knees with these puppets sort of up. Um, so GNS brings me to my knees, really. Um, <laughs> uh, but very fond memories. There's something mm. about GNS. There's a, a sort of a twinkle in the eye or something. Oh, there is, definitely. Yes, it's, it's yes. Yeah, it sends itself up something shocking. It really yeah. does. I think when you've got a group of people who know that and appreciate that and can mm. send it up even further. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's magic. Yeah, good choice. And there's something about that contralto voice as well. Oh yes, there's some very low notes in it as well. Yeah. And I love I love the bit in there about the uh, the screwy twist and the rack me turn. You know, oh, uh, wonderful stuff. Delicious words, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> and now a slight change of mood uh, for some Brahms. Yes, Brahms clarinet quintet. The reason I put that in. Uh, it was just an example of the stuff that we studied uh, in music A-level at school. I did O-level and A-level, and we did other things as well. We did Beethoven's Eighth Symphony. We did uh, Haydn Creation, Part One, Coming Sons of Art, Purcell, um, all sorts, you know, um, Beethoven, uh, Spring Sonata, a whole range of stuff. But uh, the one somehow the Brahms sticks in my mind because it was just so so oh i don't it's it's such a powerful piece and and that second movement is so gorgeous oh the start of it the absolutely wonderful i don't know how to, i don't really have the terminology to describe it properly but you know i think it's, it's just lovely it sticks in my mind anyway so if you picture a classroom in uh, our red brick school in uh, the 1960s i think we had a music set of four and we had a pretty amazing sound system actually for the time it was quad electrostatic loudspeakers uh, any hi-fi aficionado will probably recognize that as being one of the all-time classics of the hi-fi world uh i think the reason that we had them in our school was a fairly humble school really i think the only reason we had them was that they were actually manufactured in huntingdon in the same town where the school was Okay. Uh, by the acoustical manufacturing company. Uh, whether they were donated to the school or whether there was some deal or other going on, I, I, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it's extraordinary that we should have had equipment of that quality, you know. Uh, and uh, so, of course, the detail that we heard of the recordings was wonderful. Really, yeah. really excellent, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah. Having said that, I mean, a great deal of our music library at that time was on 78s, you know. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, to, play a, to play a whole symphony, uh, you probably had to have about sort of six or seven sides of uh, records, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but there we are. But uh, So fond memories of listening to music and particularly something as beautiful as that. something about those pieces that you study at A level and AS level that sort of just really stick in your mind. Um, oh completely. I mean at the time you absolutely hate having to scribble yeah. all this stuff in the margins. I think yeah. you know and, and, and you think well why on earth are we having to pull these things apart, you know? And uh, you know, look for motifs and all sorts of stuff going on, you know, and sonata form and you know analyzing the things. Uh, and um, you know where the hell does the coda start, you know, and, and all that. <laughs> but having been through that process, those pieces are completely with you for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. You know? And they have a special place, you know. Uh, they really, really do. So, you know, yeah. I'm not sure whether I'm arguing for doing lots of analysis, <laughs> but what I will say is that they've certainly, you know, they, they, they give you a lasting love for those pieces, there's no doubt about it. Or, uh, you know, at worst, a, a fondness, you know, a, a, a recollection. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I um, one of the set works that we, slightly different calibre, um, one of the set works we had at A-level was Gershwin, the Piano Concerto. concerto oh, which I love, yes. We all just loved it when we were uh, there, but... Yeah. Um, uh, and we did exactly the same thing, completely dissected it and uh, pulled it apart and put it back together again. And it's one of those pieces that I, I feel as if I could sing from beginning to end all of the yes. parts because I know it so well. Yeah, that's right, yes. I think when you dissect it and get to know it so well, it's a bit like putting on a, a nice glove, really. Yes. Uh, well, as Neil Page used to say, every year when we picked up our copies of Messiah for our annual performance mm. you always used to say oh it's like putting on a comfortable old pair of slippers oh that's one that's a nihilism <laughs> there, are, there are many of those there certainly um, are <laughs> can be dangerous to walk around in slippers though you get too comfortable which is why nowadays uh when we do messiah every year we um, each year we try and add another chorus from memory and that keeps us yeah. on our toes you know it's it's very good I thought you were going to say you were a barefoot for each performance. But, oh, well, no, of um... course I do that. Yeah, and that goes without saying. I mean, they can't see our feet from the front. <laughs> Your next track, I can, I can hear you sing it right now. <laughs> I mean, Israel and Egypt is something that I've sung. I've sung it twice, I think. Um, but the first time I sang it was my debut performance with the Nottingham Harmonic Choir. We started rehearsing in January 1990. Uh, we would have done the concert in the March. And yeah. uh, that was my first experience of singing with Neil, with Neil Page. Oh, gosh. Who, of course, was director of music at the Harmonic. I think he'd, he'd been there about four years. I think he started in the mid-80s. Yeah. I decided that I wanted to give the Harmonic a try. Um, I think I've been to see one concert of theirs when they've done Verdi Rec or something like that. And I thought, oh, this, this looks mm -hmm. good. Uh, and so I rocked up on a Monday night and did the rehearsal. And obviously there's an audition about three weeks later, which I was fortunate enough to pass. Um, but I remember at that first rehearsal forming an instant impression of Neil Page as being somebody that I really would like to work with um, mm. because he was such a generous person in terms of, you know, giving of his energy to the choir. Yeah. 
Uh, and there's, you know, you, you can argue that a certain style of um, choral directing actually does too much of that, you know, and uh, can actually make the singers rather too reliant on on the energy of one person. But nevertheless, I, I you know, I thought that his approach was just so much fun and so inspiring. Yeah. And after that first rehearsal, I thought, yeah, I want to, this is, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this is the, the choir I want to belong to. And um, yeah, so that's the start of quite a lot, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as a piece, it's just a wonderful example of um, word painting that yeah. uh, Harmonic did. Uh, and I'm quite sure, I don't actually remember, but I'm quite sure that when it came to talking about the flies and lice, I'm quite sure Neil would have done a little dance on the on his rostrum, um, <laughs> sort of, you know, scratching himself and all the rest of it, you know, just to illustrate the flies and lice. I'm sure I, I know exactly <laughs> that he would have done that, you know, and uh, that would have been part, that would have been part of his approach to the piece, you know. So lots yeah. of fun. When you said that this was your first concert with the um, with the harmonic, I'm not surprised people had a quiet word with you afterwards because it's such a <laughs> workout for the choir. Oh and yeah, all of that word painting, like you just it's it baffles me how people can just stand there and sort of deliver it to you without putting anything more physical physically mm. into it. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what I will say is that Neil never complained. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, because I, th I think to that extent, you know, to that extent, I think we're out of the same mould, you know, yeah. very much. For me, Neil always made the music sort of alive and present mm. in the room. Oh and yeah. He had such a knack of making it easy. Yes. To make the music feel alive, even if that was, if that's Handel or. Palestrina or plain song or Britain, like across such a variety of things. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, there are various memories that I've just got snapshots of different rehearsals of doing the Brahms Requiem and the rehearsals for the Elgar, the Dream of Drontius, which. Oh, yes were hilarious but he took you with him on that journey and yeah. had a such a good way of enticing you in and <laughs> so that you were unable to to let go really oh yeah and, and you know you came away thinking where did those two hours go yeah, you know? yeah. i mean those rehearsals never ever dragged yeah they really didn't yeah. and i mean just looking at the list I, I made myself a little list of some of the works that i have done with the harmonic i mean many of them more than once and it's massive i mean you know it's the whole repertoire really you know yeah from um Verdi Rec, you know uh b minor mass both you know st john passion matthew passion belshazzar's feast vaughan williams sea symphony i mean elijah oh, carmina burana child of our time tippet i mean it's massive you know and what and of course britain war requiem which i've done mm. twice with the harmonic you know um I mean, what a privilege. Yeah, yeah. You know, what a, what a, just, oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will have said this to you before, but the War Requiem that you did in 2006 was the first classical concert I went to in Nottingham. Oh, wow. And I'm so disappointed to say this, but I, this was very early in my musical career, and I didn't really know what music was, apart from, you know, the 12th of July music. And <laughs> and Gershwin concerto in there, mix. But I remember sitting and just the whole of the requiem sort of just went over my head. Right, I was like this, I just don't really get this. Mm. Apart from the penultimate movement, the before let us sleep with the baritone and the tenor. Okay, the lie, the you were the enemy I killed, my friend. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I know. Completely slayed me. Mm. And I thought, I'm, 
I do need to make more of an effort with this piece because I need yeah. to understand what's just happened before this. And... I mean, I'll be quite honest with you. I mean, at, at, at the time, I mean, although I'm really glad I've done that work, I mean, it's not an easy work to do. And, and yeah. it's, you know, uh, it's not the sort of work where you come away humming the tunes either, you know. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it really isn't. And uh, so, you know, but as, as a singer, it's, a, it, it, it's still a look back on it as a major triumph to have done it, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, um, doesn't make it easy, and uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's. I can't say that I can't look back on it with fond, fondness, if you like. I can look back on it as an achievement. Yeah, I think it's a good way to put it, actually. And now for something slightly different. Indeed, yes. <laughs> this takes us back to earlier times, and this is uh, back to school days, actually. Oh, really? Um, oh, yeah. This is uh, The Bluebird by Charles Villiers Stanford. And I encountered this piece when I was at school in our school choir. Now, as I said before, our, our school was not very large and certainly not very grand. It was a, um, a co-educational state grammar school. Uh, the total role was only about 400. Okay. We had one music teacher. We had no orchestra. We had no instrumental tuition, whatever. Uh, I think there was one peripatetic violin teacher, Mrs. Feldhaus, uh, and we had a peripatetic piano teacher as well, Irene Tomlin. Uh, but that was it. But yeah. what we did have was a choir, uh, a proper four-part choir, about 100 strong, which is a quarter of the school population, imagine that, and it rehearsed every Wednesday evening after school. And we used to do performances, you know, on speech day and other occasions. Uh, but it was a bloody good choir, it really was. And uh, it was run by the music teacher who was called Ken, Ken Brown. Very old school, but he was another one of these people who gave totally of his personality. Yeah, to produce what he produced, and so I suppose you know I've I've got this history of encountering people like that. You know, uh, dare I include you in this as well, Alex? I hope I can. Uh, people who, you know, people who do inspire through their own personality, and Ken had that in spades. He really did, um, and uh, he just used to get the most amazing results out of this choir, and. The piece, obviously we did a number of different pieces, but the piece that sticks in my mind is The Bluebird by Stanford. And he had this, the, the boy trebles, there weren't that many of us, obviously it was a mixed choir, but we had boy trebles who we used to call the angelic band. <laughs> and so <laughs> we were the angelic band and we sang the high notes in this piece, you know, when it goes, yeah, you know what I mean? Where you yeah. go, like that, you know, uh, while the rest of the choir were doing the underneath stuff. And um, so, of course, that was, uh, that was quite special. And uh, I will never forget that. It's just uh, wonderful memories of yeah. that really quite good school choir, you know.
so from Stanford to Bernstein. Yes, bit of a leap. Over the years, well, really starting, I think, in 1991, uh, I have been on a number of absolutely wonderful community holidays uh, for gay men. Some of them have been held at this wonderful sort of alternative community in southwest Scotland called Lauriston Hall. Uh, and the format for these weeks was you probably get about 60 guys that go along and you spend a week there and you hang out in the most beautiful surroundings you can go swimming in the loch uh, you can have late night saunas in in a log cabin wood-fired sauna and things like that you know wonderful vegetarian food all home cooked you know uh, beautiful forests and everything to explore I mean absolutely fantastic it's a, it's a perfect restorative really and uh, wonderful sort of retreat from everyday life and in in fabulous company you know i wouldn't want anybody to run away with the idea that it's sort of monastic and serious because it certainly ain't and uh, (laughs) people have a very good time Uh, one of the things that happens traditionally at the end of these weeks is a cabaret Uh, we all like cabarets and uh, uh, and these things are put together um, remarkably you know um, on, it's just just it just happens you know uh, yeah. and people can do anything it could be a, a poem it could be a dance it could be a story it could be a song whatever whatever you like and some of it can be very wacky indeed and uh, you know anyway uh, in the one that I went on in 2001, was actually the year of the foot and mouth um, oh, outbreak, uh, okay. which is obviously pretty sad and was quite devastating for much of the rural uh, economy at the time. So, of course, on the way there, we had all sorts of places where you had to stop and you had to dip your feet in disinfectant and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. You know, it was a bit of a business. Anyway, for some reason... One or two of these sort of uh, people who were getting the cabaret together decided to make a virtue of this and actually do a whole cabaret on the theme of foot and mouth. Now, that sounds pretty (laughs) unlikely and it doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but somehow, (laughs) somehow they made it fun. And this is the creativity of um, a whole bunch of gay men together when they're really relaxed, you know. And uh, I remember they created this whole backdrop that's uh, out of cardboard, you know, that people painted with clouds and fields and hills and cows on it. You know, this this was our backdrop. And um, But where the Bernstein comes in was that one of the people on the week was actually a professional West End musical director called Peter. And he really knew what he was doing. He's very, very good on the keyboards. And he all got us all to learn this number as a finale some other time from the musical On the Town. And it's a song, it's a farewell song, um, but it's saying, we'll meet up again. I don't want to sound like Vera Lynn. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's all about, you know, um, our well, let's meet up some other time, or we'll meet up some other time. And it's haunting. I absolutely yeah. loved it. A lot of the reason I love it, I think, is because of the context of having do- having done that at the end of that wonderful magical week you know so it has great resonance for me because of the space and the time and the people i was with it really ended the evening on a magical note it really did and uh you may remember i chose to actually sing this at one of our st barnabas cabarets um i do yeah very well that's beautiful yeah really stunning performance there well thank you one of many that you've done in those cabaret (laughs) evenings (laughs) the time all gone to haven't done half the things we want to oh well we'll catch up
from a bunch of queens to another queen. Um, <laughs> that's a terrible link. What's coming? What's coming? Because it was written for the coronation in 1953. Was it? Yeah. I had no idea. Oh, did you not? No. I am, oh. I am so ignorant. I had no <laughs> idea. Okay. All right. Um, well, that gives it a whole, a whole other... Um, what's name, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. But the reason I've included it, O Taste and Sea, is actually the first piece of Vaughan Williams that I ever sang. When I was thinking back to my time in the choir at Eaton Soken Parish Church in the mm. early 1960s, I thought to myself, well, what do we sing? And this one immediately came to mind. I think it was something that it was an introit that we used to sing quite often. And yeah. uh, I don't think I ever did a, the opening bit as a solo. I don't think I did. But uh, it's just stuck in the mind and it takes me right back to those that church and those choir stalls and um, I think they were pretty happy years in many ways, you yeah. know, they were. I think we've come to the end. <laughs> My goodness. Oh, wow. Alex, thank you so, so much. It's been such a pleasure to be invited to do this. Thank you very, very much. You are totally welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate and review and do check out our extra episode full of chat and music that we couldn't squeeze into the main episode. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.